I was deeply moved by the story of Rahab when I was writing the sermon on Tuesday, which is my sermon prep day. I want to read it to you here from Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. Hear the word of God. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered into your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, and it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you <clears throat> when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we shall deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain, and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. And so the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. 
And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the incredible encouragements. Pray that you would pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and bless each one here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at my previous church, I remember the extremely awkward feelings that a converted, uh, newly converted couple had when they first attend, started attending our services. Uh, this couple had been saved out of a very dark and broken past. And even though the lights had come on for them and they felt like they had been cleansed by the Lord, they felt clean before the Lord, uh, they, the first time they walked through the doors of our church, they were extremely awkward. It was like a, a, a cultural disorientation. Nobody dressed like them, had hair like them, had tattoos like them, talked like them. Uh, they were very visibly squirming and uh, felt out of place. Uh, the man later told me that he felt like an alien in another world uh, because uh, everybody at the church was perfect and they felt like trash. And I gave him a big hug and I said, no, uh, nobody's perfect in this church. We're just on a different stages in our growth uh, to the Lord and we'll show you the ropes. And they very much appreciated being shown the ropes of uh, a growing in Christ. But in the course of the conversation, I asked them, so do you feel comfortable with your former friends, your old friends? And it suddenly dawned on them that they did not. They felt like aliens with their old friends too. Um, it, it seemed so strange that their old friends, you know, slept around, took the name of the Lord in vain, did drugs, and did all of the things that they used to do. Okay, it struck them how overnight their former lifestyle had become utterly repulsive to them, even though they still engaged in some of the coarse talk and uh, some of the behavior that they had engaged in before, but that was repulsive to them too. They hated that, just like Romans 7 uh, talks about. So um, they kind of felt like they didn't belong anywhere, but as we pressed them into their new identity in Jesus and that they indeed, it was really God who had turned their world upside down, they were part of a new creation, they quickly began to adjust. They knew they had a lot to learn, and they were committed to learning. They began to focus less on what other people thought about them and much more upon Jesus and what Jesus thought about them. And yet, even though they grew a lot, even in the first six months, if at any point you had asked them what they felt like and they were honest, they would tell you that they still had tinges of awkwardness. And I think that's probably the way that Rahab and her family uh, felt like. Uh, it's very difficult to live down your past. Uh, even the Apostle Paul found it very difficult to live down his past of murder of God's saints. Certainly Rahab had taken a decided stand against the culture of Jericho and had embraced the God of Israel, but wow, were there a lot of cultural differences that she and her family were experiencing. And it didn't help that God excluded them from the camp for a while. They were outside the camp. And uh, that was so that they could become ceremonially cleansed and go through the process of conversion and uh, discipleship. And we'll, we'll look at that later. But let's look at the second half of the story in J Joshua 6 and verses 22 through 25. 
But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. This is after the walls of Jer- uh, Jericho fell down, and, uh, and uh, things were being uh, destroyed. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and bronze, excuse me, silver and gold, and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Our series of um, biblical biographies that we're starting today is called uh, Women of Faith, and we're starting this series with somebody who began her Christian life as low as it was possible to get, and yet God rescued her and turned her into a remarkable woman of faith that's set for all time as a model for us, a very respected model. She could have very easily during these initial days have wanted to bail when she didn't feel like she belonged. But her faith focused her so strongly upon the Lord and upon her identity in the future coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, she was able to get through all of that and become a model for people who are coming out of really, really bad lifestyles. Revoice is not the answer. A radically new identity in Jesus is the answer. And I want to look, first of all, at uh, her sordid past. She is called a harlot in the five verses that I've included in uh, your outline. And no, this simply cannot be explained away, as some liberal commentaries have tried to do, that uh, this is, you know, the the Hebrew, if it's tweaked a little bit, can mean innkeeper, and she really wasn't a, a harlot. That's a misunderstanding. No, the New Testament is quite clear that she was a poor nay. That's a word that we get the word pornography from. But in the Greek, it's always used of a prostitute, a whore, a harlot, however you want to translate that word. Her profession was merchandising various sexual experiences. There is no question about the fact that she was a professional harlot. How old she was, how many men had slept with her, we are not told. But it doesn't take much imagination to realize how degraded and worthless she may have felt. But she had other strikes against her too. As a citizen of Jericho, we know that she was an Amorite, and the Amorite society was legendary for its iniquity. Already in the time of Abraham, God had said that he was disgusted with the Amorite society. Incredible iniquity. That was way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, and yet God did not destroy the Amorites back then under Abraham. He gave us his reason that it would be some generations to come before he would do that because their iniquity was not yet full. Um, the, based on that verse, that's Genesis fifteen sixteen. we can be confident that when God sent Joshua into the land of Canaan to bring his judgments upon Canaan, that the iniquity of the Amorites was completely full. Jericho was a hellhole, and Rahab was a brand plucked from the fire and plucked with care, as the book of Jude uh, admonishes us to do. 
Now, how full of iniquity were the Amorites? Well, Leviticus 18 says that they reveled in every kind of imaginable uh, sexual filth, including incest. Uh, I wish I had not even read about the culture of Jericho. Uh, I was studying that about 20 years ago. Maybe it was longer. And I felt so defiled. I highly recommend nobody read the original documents that have been discovered uh, in that land. Um, but I will give you some very mild hints that do not go beyond the bounds of biblical propriety. The Bible itself mentions incest. Well, there was probably incest going on here, not just with her, but with her sisters. Since Rahab's father and brothers lived in the brothel with her, some have supposed that they engaged in this sin too. In addition, her father and brothers probably pimped her out to others. This too was so common in Canaan that Leviticus 19.29 had to warn Israel, do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land become full of wickedness. So it wasn't just Rahab that was in sin. Uh, Her family was likely a part of this business as well. The Amorites were also guilty of murder via abortion and infanticide. And they had various chemical and intrusive uh, measures and techniques for abortion. And, and here's, here's the thing. The fact that Rahab did not bring any children out of Canaan does not necessarily indicate that she had had abortions for previous pregnancies. It could have been that she had never been pregnant before, but that is extremely, extremely unlikely. Uh, the likelihood is that in common with all of the other prostitutes in Canaan, she was also guilty of murder, of either abortion or infanticide. And we need to call it what it is. It is murder. Let's not soft-pedal around that. So even that was likely weighing upon her conscience. I'll just give you one other hint of how full the iniquity of the Amorites had become. The statuettes and the books that have been found connected to the Amorite culture show sadism and masochism mixed in with sexual perversity. And I don't dare to describe the dehumanizing nature of the porn-driven, gender-blending, and perverse culture. But one archaeology journal, after detailing some of this, came up with a two-sentence summary that I think is good enough. It says, at the heart of Canaanite religion was sex in all its perversions, polluting the land with indescribable immorality. The Canaanites were hopelessly lost and incurable. The erotic aspect of their cult must have sunk to extremely sordid depths of social degradation. So that is why Jericho was being destroyed by God. Their cup of iniquity was completely full. And it doesn't take much research on Canaan to realize why it was God destroyed the land of Canaan. Um, The men, women, and children were utterly corrupt and demonized. And yet God not only saved Rahab out of this mess and out of the judgment that she deserved, he saved her whole family as well. If the Amorites were the dregs of society as a whole, and if Rahab was the dregs of the Amorite society, then she and her family, I think, are a spectacular tribute to God's grace reaching to the uttermost, or as Billy Sunday was very fond of saying, reaching to the guttermost. She was a brand plucked from the fire of a hellhole, and she is a testimony to the fact that trafficked women can be saved. They can. And we need to pray for the unique ministries that right now are engaged in saving traffic, boys, girls, and women. 
I really believe that these ministries reflect the heart of God himself, but it's an incredibly frustrating ministry. You talk to any of these people, it is so frustrating. As the society goes downhill, inevitably and always, without exception, the rise of trafficking uh, increases. Uh, And many of these women, if not most, are victims. Some are kidnapped girls. Uh, There are millions of women right now who are enslaved with this grisly industry. In the country that I grew up in, Ethiopia, a lot of times what would happen is these prince pimps would put advertisements out to the countryside for jobs. And so girls would go on the bus to get these jobs to bring money back to the family as cooks or as maids. And as soon as they got off the bus, they were taken by the pimps and raped and put on drugs and trained to be prostitutes. And my parents' missionary agency, SIM International, has a huge work rescuing such women out of their lifestyle, winning them to Christ, giving them an alternative means of income. It's a fabulous ministry, and there are many others like it. Now, of course, there's another side to this story. Sadly, there are a lot of prostitutes that do not want to be rescued. They turn down the opportunity, or if they try to get out, uh, they are so hooked on drugs that drug addictions lure them back. Others crave the love and affirmations of other people so much that they keep going back to the cheap claims of love from their customers. Others find it necessary to go back because of poverty. Others are forced into it by family or pimps. Others are driven uh, back into it by the demons that possess them. It's an incredibly tough mission field and one that we need to regularly pray for. The Bible does not ignore this subject. There are over 140 verses in the Bible that describe this subject, warning men about the dangers, condemning pimps, fathers, and brothers who abuse women, and showing the power of God's grace to rescue such out of the clutches of sexual and demonic bondage. Women like Mary Magdalene, who was another incredible trophy of grace. Now, I will say not all are victims. Um, I'm not ignorant of the fact that there are many wicked women who love their evil and who love to enslave other women. They're part of the kidnapping and who love power over men. The scripture talks about them as well. But many, if not most, need our compassion. And in the Gospels, Jesus showed compassion to prostitutes. He led the way. And I'm so thankful that our attorney general here in Nebraska has made uh, rescuing uh, women and children out of sexual uh, trafficking as one of his top uh, priorities. In any case, God, by his providence, orchestrated the transformation of a prostitute into a godly woman who actually became one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ in his genealogy. This is a chapter that displays remarkable mercy and grace. There is no excuse for people being saved out of the LGBTQ lifestyle or any other evil lifestyle to say they cannot shake uh, Jericho off of their shoulders. God's grace can make them all into new citizens of a new creation. Now, of course, you're going to need trained people to show you the ropes, And we'll get to that in a bit. But first of all, I want to examine how Rahab came to Christ. Uh, Joshua 2 tells us this dramatic story. And let's go over it right from the beginning at verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. 
Now, we know that Rahab had four streams of income. Prostitution was obviously one, but being an innkeeper was another uh, one. They put up travelers for food and lodging. In fact, in the ancient world, uh, the two often go hand in hand, and they still do in Asia, uh, in most hotels. But what better place for spies to get information about the land of Canaan than in an inn where people are gathering at tables to eat and uh, to, to, to talk, and they would need a place to stay anyway. And since uh, prostitutes met a wide segment of society, Rahab may have been considered to be a good source of intel. Now, we know from hindsight God led them there. Uh, I do want you to notice, however, that for integrity's sake, these two men went together and they stayed together. There was accountability, there was safety in doing so. It could end up being a horrible testimony if one of them had gone there alone. And there are at least four hints in the text that they kept themselves pure, contrary to some liberal commentaries. And so prostitution was one source of income. Keeping an inn was another. Two other sources of income that this family may have had can be deduced from verse 6, which mentions lots of stalks of flack, enough to hide the men, and the rope dyed red. Now this suggests to many commentaries, commentators that she was involved in the manufacture of linen, the only reason you'd have a lot of fl- stalks of flax hanging around, and dyed cloth. And so she appears to have been a businesswoman of sorts. Prostitutes rarely get enough money to live on. And so these were ways for her to supplement her income. Continuing the story in verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. It seems that whoever it was these spies asked for directions from on where is a local inn that they could attend immediately recognized that they were not Canaanites and reported them to the king, or it may be one of the king's men, you know, had been visiting the brothel. Uh, We're not sure. Uh, But um, they obviously immediately find out, and verse 3 continues the story. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And now comes the moment of truth. If she had wanted to continue making money and to stay in Jericho, she could have had her brothers uh, escort this men to the front and turn them over to the authorities. But at great risk to herself, she strangely takes sides with them. It appears that God had somehow, or at some point, regenerated her. The book of Hebrews makes it crystal clear she had faith at this point, and James makes it crystal clear that her faith produced the works of sanctification, her act of hiding them and sending them out another way. I know that there are some commentators who doubt that she had faith at this point, but I think it is so clear from the inspired commentary of the New Testament that she was saved by the time the king's men arrived at her door probably earlier. Uh, Did they arrive within minutes? Did they arrive within hours? We're not told. Uh, We could postulate what means the Lord had used for her conversion. Maybe the spies led by the Lord had shared the gospel with her. Maybe other travelers had shared the gospel. Or maybe, maybe God just revealed himself to her. We're not told. But in whatever way it happened, she has had a change of heart by this time in the story. So here are the king's men. They're beating on the door, asking her to bring out the spies. She instantly springs into action, takes a minute or two to quickly hide them, and then goes to the door. Now we know 
we'll see it in a little bit, that her brothers and sisters and her parents have become believers as well, but she is the only one who initiates, the only one who takes action. And this is one of three or four indicators that she's a far more remarkable person than anyone else in her family was. And we won't get into all of that. But uh, verse 4, we'll pick up the story. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, and I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So it was a close call, but in these verses, she reveals the preparatory work of the Lord already in her heart, preparing her for salvation uh, long before. Probably um, started even before those men were there, um, at least the preparatory work. Uh, Anyway, beginning at verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, and let's just stop there for a moment, I want you to notice that Lord is in all capital letters, so this is the name Yehovah, this is the covenant name that had not been revealed outside of the covenant. How does she know that their God's name is Yehovah? To me it's one of three or four hints that either these men had already told her about God, or she had found out by other means. But I want you to notice the incredibly strong confidence that she has by this time in Jehovah. I know that Jehovah has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed." And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For Jehovah, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by Jehovah, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death." That is an astonishing testimony of faith, and we'll return to that in a bit. But I think it's also an astounding testimony of grace-given love. It would have been very easy for her to leave her father and her brothers behind if indeed uh, they had been the cause of her sexual slavery. But she shows love for them. She wants them saved as well. And it does appear that God had sovereignly been at work in their lives as well. God saves prostitutes, God sometimes saves pimps, and he always is in the business of saving families. Continuing at verse 14, so the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, now the plural yours and none of you indicates that the rest of the family was there, they were in on the secret, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. Now literally, her, it says her house was in the wall, and she lived in the wall. And yet the top window was obviously higher than the wall, and this has confused people. Do we translate it literally, or do we take this 
passage that indicates, you know, they're letting her down from above the wall. And uh, it was not until they discovered in archaeology casement walls that this was a solution. So how, how is it that she could live in the wall? David Howard explains the unique Hebrew here. He says, two different words for wall are used here as well. The phrase here might be rendered as in the double walls. This would call to mind the defensive fortifications found in many cities in biblical times called casement walls, in which a double wall was erected with cross walls built to create chambers that were then filled with rubble for strengthening or else made into storage areas or living quarters. Rahab's family may have lived in one of these residences, although her window must have been rather high since she let the spies down using a rope. Perhaps the house was indeed atop the wall, but built into the wall in such a way that it was considered an integral part of it. The NRSV renders verse 15b as her house was on the outer side of the city wall and she resided within the wall itself while the NJPSV's translation is essentially the same. The NIV, the house she lived in, was part of the wall, would allow for any of the above possibilities. So the bottom line is it appears that she was in a multi-storied house that went from the ground level all the way to the top of the wall and stood above the wall where the window was and she could let them down over the wall, which would indicate that she's in a much better financial position than most prostitutes in the city would be. She probably has much better paying customers. Well, this would have been the perfect place for these spies to do their spy work. From the height of this wall, they could make calculations. They could size up the population, see the strength of the fortifications. They could gather other intel on the city. Picking up at verse 16, And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. And so while the pursuers are heading east, where the spies had come from, the encampment of Israel is over by the Jordan on the other side, she's sending him west, much deeper into Amorite territory, which would not have been expected. And so this is one of several hints that she's an incredibly shrewd woman. It's probably one of the reasons why she survived and prospered in such an incredibly dangerous industry. And so she has them hide out in the mountains until people stop looking. Verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when you come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now that scarlet cord has for all time become a symbol of redemption through blood. Okay, just as the Passover blood on the door uh, frames uh, made the death angel pass by, this cord acted as a signal to the angels that tore down those walls to leave this portion uh, apart. And um, anyway, um, it's a scarlet cord hanging publicly. It's a public testimony. 
Uh, and so long as she and her relatives stay in the home, they're safe. By the way, this is not just a symbol of blood. This is also a symbol of her sin. And almost everybody recognizes that. You talk about red light districts. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have lights. They had uh, either a red uh, scarf or red rope or something like that. But it was a symbol of sin. And the point is that in atonement, that sin and the atonement, the atoning blood, are linked together very tightly. Jesus paid the price for all of our sins, including prostitution, when he died for the elect. Christ's blood has made similar stories to be multiplied all over the world. In fact, there is a cool name for one of the ministries in Amsterdam. It's called the Scarlet Court, and I think it's a really cool name. Another, by the way, Hebrews 11.31 does not describe the rest of the citizens as poor people who did not have a chance to believe. It says, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. They were condemned for their unbelief. Their unbelief was a willful unbelief. Uh, Romans 1 and 3 teaches that there will not be anybody in hell who can claim, oh, I wasn't given the chance to believe. No, there is none who seeks after God, Romans 3, 11. Apart from sovereign grace, no one would believe and no one would want to believe, okay? So Rahab would not have believed unless God had given her the gift of faith and her family would not have believed unless God had given them the gift of faith. This is really a story of sovereign grace. So what were the evidences of her salvation? And I will say there has to be evidences of salvation because Hebrews 11 says she was a model of faith. To be a model of faith, you've got to have some visible manifestations of faith that we can imitate, and there are. I'm going to go over eight of them. The first evidence of faith is given in Hebrews 11.31, which says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So the first evidence is that she received the spies with peace. She must have known that they were spies from Israel when she received them into her home. So she's welcoming them for a different reason she had welcomed other men in the past. Uh, Totally different reasons. As a prostitute, she was able to quickly size up people. That's how prostitutes survive. And uh, I will say they must have been pretty lousy spies if they were so easily recognized. But uh, she knows when they came to her door that they were the enemy coming to conquer Jericho, and yet she receives them in peace rather than declaring war upon them and sending them away. This is aiding and abetting the enemy. The second evidence of faith is that she hid the spies even when the authorities were demanding that they be turned over. This is going one step further and taking action against the leaders of Jericho. This is an act of war against Jericho. Here's the point. Faith always takes sides. Faith always declares war against the devil and against our old lifestyle. So really in one sense, each of these points is going to have the flip side of repentance with it. We won't recover those. But the third evidence of faith is seen in verses 8 through 9. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Jehovah has given you the land. As far as she is concerned, Jehovah has already won the battle. She believes uh, Canaan has no hope against Jehovah. It takes faith to believe that. Okay? It takes faith. This means she has been a spy herself doing some information gathering about these Jews. 
and their God, and she had already come to believe that God would win, and she believed it probably more than some of the Israelites believed it. Now, let's contrast that with the attitude of the uh, people in Jericho. The other Canaanites, even though scared to death, still resisted God, which would imply they think there's still a chance of winning against God. They do not 100% believe that God is going to win. But if God says he will win, Rahab believes he will win. She has more faith than many Christians today who are very selective in what they will believe in the Bible. They fail to believe the Bible's statements about the age of the universe and that God created this universe in six days or that there was no... Um, uh, death and suffering for millions of years before Adam and Eve and they believe male headship and they believe God hates statism and he hates socialism so this they fail to believe I should say these are people these are Christians who claim to be believers and yet they will flip through and they will excise things out of the Bible that they do not really believe that's not faith Hebrews 11 says that true faith takes God at his word. Against all odds, she believes that God will win. The next hint of her faith can be seen in the rest of verses 9 through 11, where her approach to God is quite different from the rest of the Canaanites. Let me try to spell it out. All of the Canaanites were faint-hearted. That would include her. All of the Canaanites were faint-hearted, but only Rahab ran directly to the God of judgment. Okay. Later, God also saved the Gibeonites for much the same reason and eventually incorporated them into Israel. They ran toward the God of judgment. You see, faith is not necessarily present just because people are fearful of hell. I mean, we've seen that over and over. How many times did I, quote-unquote, get saved because I didn't want to go to hell when I was a kid and was not really truly regenerate? I loved my sin. No. A person who's regenerate has a, a brand-new perspective of God and appreciates, is attracted to God's holiness, and comes into agreement with God's judgments. So faith runs to the God of judgment. Counterfaith does not like the God of judgment. Pagans can believe that God is a God of judgment. They can believe in hell and hate God for it. They're not going to run to him for it. The next evidence is that she had unconditional surrender to God. Faith capitulates to God. It surrenders to God. It submits to God. This is the difference between Rahab and some modern so-called prostitutes for Christ who stay as prostitutes, or swingers for Christ who stay in their old swingers lifestyle, or gays for Christ who will not unreservedly bow before King Jesus and reject their old lifestyle. Unconditional surrender is an evidence of genuine faith. Faith trusts that it's okay to surrender to God, no matter what God does. That's what makes it unconditional surrender. The next evidence of faith is that she had hope, whereas the Canaanites are said in verse 11 to have despair. There's always hope where faith is present. Despair is the opposite of faith. And too many Christians, unfortunately, despair about victory over sin. They despair about God being willing to forgive their sin. Maybe they think that their sins are far too great for God to forgive, but true faith believes God's word when God says, in the wording of the Apostle Paul, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so if you think you cannot be forgiven and changed by God's grace, then you need to look to Rahab the harlot. If you think 
that somebody else cannot be forgiven, look to Rahab the harlot. Do not despair, have faith. The seventh evidence of her faith was that she did not compartmentalize life. I have seen way too many Christians who keep Christ out of certain areas of their life where they think Christ is relevant to the church, maybe their personal devotions, but Christ is not really relevant to their job or to politics or to their bedroom. But she speaks in verse 11 of Jehovah as being the God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. You see, this is such a contrast to the Canaanite gods, each of whom had a tiny little sphere of influence where they would work. And she recognizes, no, God is the God of all the earth. He is the Lord over all. There is no compartmentalizing of life. The eighth evidence of her faith is that she put the scarlet cord in the window to let down the spies and left it there as a testimony of her trust in God's redemption. That scarlet cord could perhaps have given her away. You know, as far as it hung down, it might have been uh, something that would have triggered, you know, retribution from the king if he had noticed it. But it was the obedience of faith. Now, here's my question to you this morning. Do you have saving faith or only a counterfeit? And measured against the faith of Rahab, it has nothing to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good God is and how adequate God is for your needs. And so faith trusts God completely. May we do so as well. But since there can be no genuine faith without repentance and the fruits of repentance, James 2.25 says that Rahab demonstrated her faith by her good works. This was an evidence of genuine repentance. We would have legitimately questioned her faith if she said, oh, I'm going to go into Israel, but I'm going to remain a prostitute. No, then we'd say, you don't have genuine faith. If there's no repentance, repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. If you don't have repentance, you do not have faith. <clears throat> anyway, Matthew 1, 5, Joshua 6 says she made a break with her lifestyle. Matthew 1, 5 says she became a wife of Salmon, who faithfully raised children to God's glory. Uh, James gives two more evidences from the story. It says she showcased her good works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So receiving the messengers is at the beginning of the story. Sending them out another way is at the end of the story in in Joshua 2. And it illustrates, again, faith and repentance are same sides of the the same, uh, opposite sides of the same coin. Both of those things showcase another thing. It's an entire turnaround of her life. Repentance means to turn around, go the opposite direction. You're not going to be perfect. It's uh, direction, not perfection, but you've turned around. A fourth evidence of her genuine repentance is seen in verse 13 where she tried to save her family for Christ and see them. She wants them to leave their Canaanite lifestyle and culture. We've already looked at that. And chapter 6 indicates that her entire family became Israelites. They were incorporated by conversion into the tribe of Judah. Without full-fledged conversion and discipleship, they could not have become full citizens of the state of Judah. And the next point shows how. The fifth evidence of genuine repentance is that she willingly embraced the biblical process that always happened at conversion. It was a period of time when they renounce, put off the old world, they begin learning the ropes of Christianity, putting on new habits. So the lesson for me is that new Christians who claim to be Christians but refuse to be discipled 
and refuse to learn the ropes give no evidence of genuine faith and repentance. They're not saved yet. Matthew one twenty one says that Christ's whole purpose for coming into the world was to save his people from their sins. Not save them in their sins, save them from their sins. Not just save them from hell, but salvation from sin. Well, this involves an abandonment of the old lifestyle and learning the ropes of the new. And that will be a process. And initially, it's very, very difficult. Romans 7 talks about the difficulty. You know, people who are new and genuinely saved hate their old lifestyle and yet find themselves still doing some of the things that they hate. It's a struggle that they are going through. And so there is a process of sanctification that has to happen. Any habit is difficult to put off. It requires persistent effort. And that's why Joshua 6, verse 23, said that Rahab and her family had to stay outside the camp for a time. Now, it's not mentioned here, but it was to give time for the Old Testament conversion process. And let me put the pieces together for you. Matthew 1.5 tells us that Rahab eventually married Salmon. According to Jewish tradition, he was one of the two spies that were in her house earlier, whether that's true or not. If it is true, he probably saw the genuineness of her faith. But according to the law of God, he could not marry her yet. She had to go through a month-long period of transition, of putting off and putting on. That's specified in Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. And I'm going to read this for you. It may seem extremely strange to our new covenant years, but it was precious to them. It was something that gave them hope and support. Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 13. It says, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." And the next verse deals with some of her uh, marriage rights. Now, I'll just very, very quickly say, this passage is not in any way contradicting the earlier passages that say Israelites may never, ever, ever marry an unbeliever. Okay, so this passage is assuming this woman has become a believer. And uh, there are other passages that indicate that a marriage covenant requires both parties to agree, or it's not a marriage covenant. Covenants always require. So the assumption is she wants to marry him. It's not, it's not a, um, a forced uh, shotgun marriage. And so laying aside those issues, I just want to comment on the unusual symbolism God put in place during the Old Covenant. Belief alone was not enough for this woman to marry the man. She had to trim her nails. She had to shave off her head, all of the hair of her head. She had to burn her clothes. And it was a symbol that she was completely leaving behind all of the lifestyle, customs, culture, religion, habits, everything else about her pagan life. Nothing of the past was to be imported. And according to Deuteronomy 6, just like a new child is trained how to live out the Bible in every area of life, she would be going through that training. And Ezekiel and other passages talk about that. Ian Cairns in his commentary says, The shaving of hair and paring of nails mark a definitive break with the old way of life and a preparation for entering the new. Now this is something that is completely missing from most evangelical churches today. 
It wasn't missing in Ethiopia. Where I grew up, they always had a public declaration where they would raise their hands and say, I renounce Satan and all of his works, and they would destroy the strongholds that Satan had claimed in their lives by identifying them, confessing their sins. It was a remarkable a conversion process. So there was a definitive break with the old lifestyle and a commitment to live like a Christian should. And if you've never done that, it's not too late. Even if your conversion was long ago, there's no reason why we could not go through such a, uh, such a process. Anyway, Daniel Block says much the same in his commentary. He says, While having her shave her hair, trim her nails, and remove her native clothing appear to be insulting demands, these actions symbolize her change of status. When her hair and nails grow and she puts on new clothes, she emerges as a new person with a new identity and new status. She hereby declares non-verbally what Ruth declared verbally to Naomi, and treat me not to leave you or to turn back from fault <clears throat> or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. The actions also remind her new husband that he is not to treat her as an alien or a slave. So Deuteronomy says that this month was also to give her provision to mourn and to adjust, make previous uh, adjustments to her losses, but other hints in Scripture indicate there was intense biblical discipleship that happened during that month. From Ezekiel and other prophetical writings, we learn there was baptism, renunciation, affirmations of faith. This is where the Jewish concept of proselyte baptism comes from. And if she had children, all of those children would have been baptized right along with her. So there was this put off, there was a put on. She had to be discipled into a biblical religion with all of its strange ways and customs. She was now the citizen of a new world, a new creation. Now all of that had to happen before Solomon would be allowed by the law of God to marry Rahab. Outside the camp, she was in a no man's land. She wasn't in Canaan, but she wasn't yet fully in the church. It was an awkward stage of learning the ropes. But Rahab did learn and began a line that includes a beautiful story in Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth ends with these words in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And notice her husband Salmon's name. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So this means Rahab the harlot was in the line of King David and ultimately in the line of King Jesus. This is just awesome. It's just an awesome story of transformation. Now, before I close, let me go through a few more lessons that we can learn from this wonderful convert, uh, Rahab. First of all, we should treat prostitutes as humans made in God's image. The two spies did not treat Rahab as dirt. Now, she wallowed in the dirt, and she was very, very dirty in God's sight. But 
she, um, they, they could see she was a human made in God's image, and they dialogued with her in a non-demeaning way, as equals. We must never look down on sinners. Instead, may the Pharisees hurl at us the same accusations that they hurled at Jesus when they, they said disgustedly, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew 11, verse 19. Now, it's not as if Jesus ignored their sins. No, he called them to account for their sins, called them to repentance, gave them new life. He changed them. But we see in Jesus that he did not treat them like dirt the way that the Pharisees did. Down through history, there have been many immoral women and even prostitutes who have married and become very respectable citizens of God's kingdom. I have been friends with some of these women. They are not to be looked down on. Even though many of these women in our churches have committed murder through abortion, they're redeemed, they're clean through the blood of Christ, and we need to treat them that way. And really, in terms of this point, even before they were saved, it was obvious that they still possessed the image of God. However shattered and tattered that image may be, by God's grace, that image can be restored to Christ. And really, all of us have a shattered and tattered image of God, don't we? And Colossians 3.10 says that every Christian is progressively being renewed into his image. Okay, second, we should not see any human being as being beyond God's grace and forgiveness. Unless, of course, they've committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, how do I know if they've committed the unpardonable sin? Well, Hebrews tells us it's impossible for somebody who's committed the unpardonable sin to be renewed to repentance. So call them to repentance. If they repent, they've not committed the unpardonable sin, right? But the point is that some churches do not welcome certain people into their churches, and they treat them as if they've committed the unpardonable sin. Now, if these people, these certain people, are not willing to repent not willing to be discipled, not willing to change, well, of course, you cannot. But rejecting people because of their past is a blasphemy against God's grace. 1 Corinthians 6 points out that many of the Corinthians that have been saved had a similar lifestyle to the Amorites. Very similar lifestyle to the Amorites. They had been saved, they had been saved out of incest. And yes, the incestuous man who later returned to that and was excommunicated, and 2 Corinthians gets restored. Now, are there boundaries put upon these people? Yes. Does everybody know what their weaknesses are? Yes, they do. There has to be hedges and protections put in place. Uh, they're being real. In other words, they're not being naive, but he was restored. Other Corinthians were saved out of prostitution, fornication, homosexuality, drunkenness, stealing, murder, and other sins. And yet 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, and such were some of you. I praise God for the past tense of that were. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So don't buy into the revoice movement that gives no hope of such transformation. Your new identity is in Jesus, not in your past lifestyle. In fact, what you'll do is you'll use the label that people put upon you and say, yeah, yeah, I, I was a harlot, or I was a murderer, or I was this or that, and yet God changed me. I'm no longer there. That's the only legitimate way to use uh, the past label. There is no such thing as a harlot Christian or a gay Christian or a thief Christian. 
But there is such a thing as a former murderer preaching the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul was one. Third, I would encourage us to pray for ministries to prostitutes and other down-and-outers and try to support them as we are able. This is a brutal, it's one of the most difficult mission fields you can imagine. Incredibly difficult. They need our appreciation, our love, our financial support and prayers. When you start effectively winning people to Christ and rescuing them from pimps, the mafia will start coming after you. Whether you're in North America, South America, Asia, Africa, I don't care where you're at, they're going to start coming after you. And the reason is that trafficking women and children is a multi-billion dollar industry. And when that much money is being made, people will not take kindly to you rescuing boys, girls, and women being trafficked. You're cutting into their profits. Conservative estimates are that somewhere between 175,000 to 250,000 women disappear into trafficking every single year from the former Soviet Union states alone. They disappear. They're kidnapped. They're taken away. Uh, just for example, on one of those former Soviet Union, the Moldovan Security Service calculates that 600,000 of its citizens are working as sex slaves in other countries. That's just a tiny country. 600,000 of their citizens have disappeared. The Russian mafia controls much of Israel's sex trade, with up to 90% of the trafficked women coming from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And much as governments like our Nebraska government fight and fight and fight against it, it does not appear to be going away. When you, you, You've got $9 billion in profits after all expenses are paid. Uh, this is going to be really tough, and it's sickening. It is beyond sickening, and I would urge you to be as sickened by this as God was. If you are as sickened by this trade as God was, you will have no question with God's declaring war upon Canaan. No question whatsoever. In fact, you will be motivated to pray God's imprecatory prayers against the leaders of these kinds of a movement. But in the process, don't forget to pray for ministries like Joy International, Operation Underground Railroad, Tim Tebow Foundation, Prison Fellowship, Concerned Women for America, Initiative Against Sexual Trafficking, European Baptist Federation, Church Commission for Migrants in Europe, Christian Action and Networking Against Trafficking in Women, International Justice Mission, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Mission to the World, SIM International, uh, the Scarlet Cord out of Amsterdam, Christian Aid and Resources Foundation, also out of Amsterdam, Door of Hope out of London, 125 Limited out of Bristol, Alabaire Christian Care Centers out of Bristol, and there really are hundreds of other missions, some doing a better job than others are doing. And as I, many of them will point out, many of these people that are being trafficked are baptized Christians who have been kidnapped. These are brothers and sisters. <clears throat> and I think God still has as much rage and anger and wrath against such industries as he had against Canaan. And since God's heart is in this, we ought to reflect his heart by praying the imprecatory prayers against them and evangelizing. And since God's heart is in this, probably we ought to figure out some way in which we can include one or more of these missions in our budget, our church budget, and start praying for them regularly. Fourth, if you decide to get personally involved in rescuing trafficked children and women, be extremely careful what you do and how you do it. 
This is not only because of the dangers you will face from pimps, and they are very real dangers, but also the dangers you will face from temptation. These prostitutes have been trained from youth to know the different ways to lure men into temptation, and they have demons who are working with them. Okay, so um, you, you need to be very, very uh, careful. Um, these spies went as a team. False accusations could not happen. Uh, they could have each other's backs with prayer and protection. When you invade the darkness of Omaha and Council Bluffs, and believe me, it is rife in these two cities and all across our states, uh, you're bound to get demons fighting back, and so you're going to need to have prayer cover. You're bound to occasionally get pimps attacking you. Uh, you're occasionally going to get robbed, falsely accused, and slandered by the very women whom you are trying to rescue. You'll be, you, you, you'll be betrayed. Um, so go into, into the ministry with your eyes open and with your hands to heaven. This is not a ministry for the naive or the careless. And really, most of those who are already ministering in this area will tell you exactly the same thing. And they will say, they will strongly admonish you, don't get involved on the street level until you've had some training. Uh, but at a minimum, we can at least support them with prayer and money. Last, realize that Jesus identified with sinners in his genealogy as a symbol of the fact he came to save just such people. And if you have secret sins that you have been afraid to go to Jesus uh, over, see his heart. See his heart. He has a heart for rescuing you. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you, and the you is referring to the self-righteous priests and leaders of Israel, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So your past sin is not a hindrance to your forgiveness or to your inclusion in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Your pride and your self-sufficiency are the hindrance. Christ's grace can transform anyone. And I think the genealogy of Jesus is all the proof that you need. He had ancestors who were Gentile converts, thieves, cheats, guilty of incest, adultery, and murder. And they, they show to us. He identifies. He identifies. He took to himself sinners, purifying them, changing them into totally new people. And so if you're a sinner who has felt hopelessly bound to your sin, look to Jesus. Renounce your past. Take whatever legal hits you need to take. And sometimes we do need to take legal hits. Just admit to the law what we've engaged in. And by faith, begin receiving the new life that Jesus purchased for you. Talk to the elders or the deacons and start to go through intense discipleship and counseling and find the joy of victory and wholeness that can come through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And may he receive all of the glory. Amen. Oh, Father, what a difficult, difficult subject. And yet it's a subject you have broached, you have tackled, and you desire us to tackle as well. And I pray for these ministries and lift them up before you and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon them. Enable them to be encamped round about by your angels and to have power in the words that they speak into the lives of women and of pimps and of others who have been held captive by this sexual industry. Lord, would you please use the story of Rahab to give hope to people who feel hopelessly lost. Would you uh, grant... Um, 
uh, to these ministries, the finances that they need, the laborers that they need, all of the prayer support that they need. And forgive us, Father, for those times where this has been out of sight and out of mind and we have uh, failed to recognize uh, the deep stain that exists upon our nation that implicates people high in power uh, who are making money off of this and who are uh, deeply involved in it. Would you, Father, curse down uh, to the ground or save uh, those in the highest levels of our governments who have been involved in supporting this and have actually been resistant to people like our um, Attorney General who is trying to uh, rescue women and children from this bondage. Please, Lord, have mercy and cause the Church of Jesus Christ uh, to uh, be a powerhouse of salvation to the down and outers. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.